1: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer.
2: And I'm Will Arimus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, April 17th, on today's show, we'll talk about trouble at Tesla. The electric vehicle company has suspended production of the Model 3, the car that will make or break its business. We'll also talk about the real estate site Zillow, which is expanding its business in a surprising new way, and its investors are not happy.
1: Later, we'll be joined by Yashima Bate Milner, founder and executive director of Data for Black Lives. You might have seen her piece earlier this month on Medium, entitled An Open Letter to Facebook from the Data for Black Lives Movement. Give black researchers, data scientists, and black communities access to our data. We'll talk to her about what questions she has for Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg following his two congressional hearings last week in the wake of the Cambridge
2: Analytica data breach. And we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, our picks for our favorite things we saw on the web this week. All right, April, how are you doing this week?
1: I am okay. Uh, how are you doing well?
2: I'm doing well. I've been enthralled by the big new war between Tesla and the media. I've noticed that Tesla is now putting out statements calling media sources extremist organizations, accusing them of being in league with union organizers. They said that a damaging report about worker safety at Tesla's factories by the Center for Investigative Reporting.
1: An amazing group out here in California. Yeah,
2: they do fantastic work. And uh, and Tesla responded to their report in a way that actually reminded me of how the Trump administration responds to critical media reports. I mean, they basically, in so many words, called it fake news.
1: Right. They said that this is a baseless news organization that is just trying to undermine Tesla's work. Uh, But in reality, what the Center for Investigative Reporting found were a number of troubling cases and uh, of of people who have been working at the Tesla factory whose uh, serious injuries were not properly reported or recorded, um, as well as a history of underreporting serious industries at the Tesla plant, which really ups the serious injury rate at Tesla to uh, quite a bit higher than the automobile industry average. And uh, it's an incredibly important report uh, that kind of Shows that the the rush to produce these cars and the pressure that, that the projections that Elon Musk has put on the company in terms of how much they have been hoping to produce at each quarter has uh, actually had some very disastrous consequences that have affected uh, people 's lives and, and health and ability to work
2: just for the the context here, so Tesla is in the process of trying to build the new Model Three sedan. Its Model S has been a runaway hit for years, but it's a luxury car, and so it has brought electric vehicles to the high-end market, but all along, Tesla's goal has been to produce electric vehicles for the mass market, for sort of the the ordinary middle-class consumer. And the Model 3 is that car. It's been working on it for years. It has set for itself incredibly ambitious production targets that everybody said all along were going to be really difficult to meet. But that's what uh, Tesla CEO Elon Musk does for a living. He makes incredible promises and then tries somehow, you know, by hook or by crook to, to, to make them happen. And in this case, it looks like he's been cutting corners when it comes to safety. Now, Tesla really strenuously disputes this report as... As we said, but there, it, you know, it's hard to take their. They're disputing very seriously when they're they're lobbing pretty clearly baseless accusations at the media organization that, that's reporting on them.
1: Right. You know, I I I think a more appropriate response would be we're going to look into this and we're going to take the health of our employees very seriously and we always do and uh, and and do whatever they can to 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 rectify this. And that might be a reason why right after this report came out, Tesla announced that they're shutting down Model Three production temporarily. Uh, this is a, a report that came out. Out of BuzzFeed. Apparently, the people who uh, work at Tesla are going to be expected to use vacation days or stay at home without pay. Uh, in the the midst of the uh, of the temporary shutdown, and just to give kind of an example of the the types of production numbers that that Musk's company is demanding out of the factory, you know, in the first quarter of 2018, it did miss uh, its goals. The company was supposed to be making about uh, 2,500 cars a week in the first quarter of this year, but instead, it was only making 2,000 uh, by by April 1st, um, and you know, now they're pausing production. Uh, you know Tesla's current goal was to to manufacture 5,000 cars a week, right? By the end of of the second quarter of this year, um, and that was uh, the 5,000 car a week goal was also its year end goal by by 2017, which obviously it's still not at if it's making 2,000 a week by April 1st. So just really high uh, standards for the amount of output that that Musk was promising here, and also this car, the 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 Model 3, that was supposed to be their most affordable car, right? Will.
2: Yeah, it's their it's their attempt at an affordable car. And now, always all it's always a relative term. It's going to cost thirty five thousand dollars. It's not exactly the cheapest car on the market, but certainly compared to the Model S, which which will run you in most cases upwards of seventy thousand, it is relatively affordable. And I've you know I've been rooting for this for a long time. I mean, I I, I Am really, I am a big admirer of Tesla's goals of changing transportation in America, personal transportation from being something that's based on fossil fuels to being something that's more sustainable um, I, musk is has an incredible record of achieving the seemingly impossible. But this report just painted a picture where it seems like, you know, he's he's famously makes sacrifices himself. He's been sleeping on the factory room floor. He like, what, what did he bring? It? A sleeping bag or a tent in there to the-, to the Yeah,
1: something cute like that. Right. Yeah. And,
2: and so, but that sends a message, you know, to, to everybody down the line, look, we should be sacrificing ourselves to get this job done. Now, that's one thing if you're Elon Musk, but if you're a factory worker uh, and you're, you know, you're doing this job to get by and you're being asked by your CEO to sacrifice your personal safety and mind you this is not a union shop there's been a there's been a union drive but i think tesla has has pretty vigorously opposed it so i i'm just not sure how fair it is for him to ask those those same kind of sacrifices from the factory workers on the floor
1: right and uh you know, just to give an example of, of one of the the workers whose stories was shared in the Center for Investigative Reporting piece that came out on Monday, uh, one man, Dennis Cruz, who is a quality inspector at the factory, he had a series of injuries that um, caused him to to no longer work on the production line, and he was put on workers' compensation uh, because of tendonitis that he had uh, gotten while on the job, and. Um, Under workers' compensation, he was unable to afford rent in the Bay Area. Uh, Tesla's factory is located in Fremont, so south of San Francisco, and he ended up living in his car. You know, this was just one of many stories that were shared in the report. Really recommend checking it out, and and we will continue to watch this closely because— you know, it's great that Tesla has these goals of, of, of reducing emissions and getting their cars out there, uh, but it's just not worth it if people are getting hurt in the process. Tesla wasn't the only piece of news that we were watching outside of the Facebook mess in recent days. Also, Zillow, the website that lists housing and and, and often depressingly high housing prices, at least if you're here in the Bay Area where I'm based, is uh, changing the way it does business a little bit or adding a, a, a new thread to its business. Will, can you expand on that?
2: Yeah, so Zillow has become a leader in the online real estate marketplace. You go there to see what homes are for sale in your area, in your price range. Uh, you go there to sell your home or to list it for rent. Part of this model is to cut out real estate agents, really, as as intermediaries. But in reality, real estate agents are working with Zillow, and they've, they've put their listings on the site. So it's become an incredibly useful resource for home buyers and home sellers. One of the ways that it got ahead in the first place was it came up with these things called zestimates. This is, (laughs) it's like they wrote software that will take in signals like a home's square footage, uh, the price of homes around it, um, you know what the trends are in the area. Was it software or software? I think it must have been software. You're right. Okay. okay. Uh, so this software would would make a estimate of how much a home was worth, even if that home wasn't even on the market. So they they estimated the value basically of every home in America. That was really fun because it allowed you to like to to see publicly like what your friend's house was worth or what a neighbor's house was worth. Um, the estimates weren't perfect, but uh, they were they were enough to pique people's curiosity. They were enough to bid, build Zillow into this very popular site. Now, its business is taking a big turn. They announced last week that they are going to start actually buying and selling houses themselves. So, in other words, Zillow, in some cases, if they have a listing on there that they you know that's maybe way below their Zestimate for it, um, maybe they'll jump in, buy it, they'll hire people, uh, contractors to come in and fix it up, and then they will sell it themselves to users of their own platform. Their stock tumbled 8% on this news, uh, investors apparently <laughs> thinking that, you know, maybe there's a downside to beca- to getting into the house-flipping business.
1: What were investors uh, kind of skeezed out about on this? I mean, I've never owned a home. I've only rented. But, you know, it seems like Zillow would be in a great position to know if they're getting a good deal. And, it, you know, especially with the software that they have to, to probably read on this faster than any real estate agent could. Uh, why is this a bad move for them, potentially?
2: You know, it's interesting. I think I think it's it's hitting that line between a business where you can see the gains from automation uh, and a business where you have to get your hands dirty and do actual physical work in the physical world. Mm. Investors in general like Zillow, or they have liked Zillow, because it's all software, and and software is a high margin business, right? You hire uh, five hundred good coders and build a cool website, and the money, just the advertising money. They're, right now, they make money by ads. The advertising money. Just flows in, and it's uh, you know it's it's a good business to be in. If you're getting into the business of buying homes, if you're getting in the business of hiring contractors to fix things, I mean, a lot more can go wrong. When, as anybody who's tried to renovate a house is probably aware, there are all kinds of things that can go wrong. Also, if the market takes a big turn uh, and Zillow is stuck with a bunch of unsold housing inventory, that's a big risk. Um, it's it's very capital intensive on their part, and there are questions about whether they really have the expertise as a. Sort of software and and tech company to be getting into this business.
1: I think, you know, another thing I'd be worried about for Zillow would be if people start not liking them. I think right now people don't care about Zillow. It's just the website that they go to to find out, you know, how much a house costs. They don't have any particular ambient anger towards that company. But I could see people not liking Zillow if they started to try to upsell them or if they started getting the house flipping business. It could start to create a distaste around a company that right now people don't care about and investors probably like how much people don't really care.
2: That's a great point and one I hadn't really thought about. Certainly one group that might not like Zillow for doing this are real estate agents. I mean, so far, they've been willing to share their listings on these online marketplaces. But if Zillow... Maybe even
1: advertise with them, too. Well,
2: yeah, yeah, good point. I mean, if Zillow is all of a sudden competing with real estate agents, maybe they rethink that decision. Uh, but the reason Zillow thinks it's worth it is because they must think that their software for estimating home values has gotten good enough that it can identify market inefficiencies at scale and it can find these values at a scale that's never been possible before. Um, and, and so I think they see it as a huge upside opportunity for them if, if all goes well.
1: Well, they've got the data. Hopefully they can find a way to monetize that without pissing everybody off. <laughs> a very difficult thing to do in Silicon Valley, as we know. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will be joined by Yashima Bate Milner, founder and executive director of Data for Black Lives.
0: Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49%, based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com.
1: Our guest today is Bit Milner. She's the founder and executive director of Data for Black Lives, an organization composed of activists, organizers, and mathematicians committed to the mission of using data science to create concrete and measurable change in the lives of Black people. Earlier this month, she published a piece on Medium entitled An Open Letter to Facebook from the Data for Black Lives movement. Give Black researchers, data scientists, and Black communities access to our data. Yashimabit, welcome to If Then. Thank you for having me. So I want to start out by uh, talking about something that wasn't discussed much at the hearings. And that's the fact that Facebook's data collection really is a form of surveillance, right? It, it's it's just collecting data online in the same way we can think of the NSA does. And in fact, the NSA, as we know, used Facebook's data collection as part of its collection effort. But to make sense of all the data that's collected in, in any online surveillance effort, these firms have to profile people, right? You have to put people into categories. And then in Facebook's case it sells those categories to advertisers as a way to directly target subsets of people, right? Um, you know, you can't just have a big group of data and 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 use it without, without making sense of it somehow, and that's by profiling often. But the effects of that type of data profiling don't hit everyone the same way. And I was wondering if you could kind of help us understand in a broad way, how does data profiling and, and online data collection uh, affect communities of color perhaps differently than than other communities on the internet?
0: You know, one thing in the letter that I wrote that I think resonated with a lot of people was that data is a instrument of social change or a weapon of political warfare, really depending on whose hands it's in. And one of the things that I think the public is really learning from what's happened with Facebook and Alexander Kogan and Cambridge Analytica is that, you know, there's so much data that is collected on our communities, especially on black people, and that has a, has a deep historical context. But really, what is this data being used for, right? Is it being used to help us solve some of the world's biggest problems, which we believe there's a possibility for? Or is it being used, you know, to steer the country in the political direction that it's in now? And, you know, in the open letter, we talk about what happened with Facebook, Um and this larger history of, you know, we can't see this massive data collection, you know, and what we, what I consider human subject research outside of the context of Nazi experiments, mm-hmm. Tuskegee experiments, and this long, long, long history of um, data collection um, without people's consent, without in knowledge, right, without the op- option to really opt out of it. And, you know, I believe that in the age of big data, unless we understand this history, unless we as advocates, unless, you know, tech entrepreneurs like Mark Zuckerberg recognize this history, we really risk repeating it.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about what Data for Black Lives does and and kind of how you got started and how you're addressing some of these issues that you just talked about?
0: So Data for Black Lives, we launched in the um, November 2017 with a conference at the MIT Media Lab. Um, we are a organization, a network right now of 3,000 scientists, activists, advocates, mathematicians, software engineers, people who work at places like Google and Facebook, honestly, who are really committed to using the power of big data to make real change in the lives of black people. You know, I actually grew up learning how to use data for very different purposes than I think most people are really accustomed to. When I was a high school student, some young people at a neighboring high school, the school that I was actually supposed to go to, but I was a part of a magnet program at another school. Um, they organized a peaceful protest in the school cafeteria because a administrator put a student in a headlock, right? And instead of their protest being recognized as being, wow, you know, these young people are so courageous and look at their, you know, use of nonviolent leadership principles to really get their voices heard, Their protest was met with violence. Um, SWAT teams were sent in police dogs. I remember sitting at home and literally watching on CNN as, you know, the headlines read students at Miami Senior High riot and seeing kids that I went to kindergarten with being slammed against police cars and arrested. You know, so I knew then and there that we really had to find other channels to get our voices heard, that even the traditional avenues of advocacy are going to be met with violence. And that's really where I turned to data, right? Right after that, I joined an organization where we hit the ground running surveying 600 young people in Miami-Dade County about their experiences in schools with suspensions, arrests, sexual harassment, you know, and... It was tough because while we were doing the data collection, we were also trying to talk to our um, school board about these issues. And we would often be kicked out of the meetings, you know. Mm -hmm. But that data collection became so important because what we were able to do with the data was actually turn it into a a comic book. (laughs) And that comic book was used and is still being used today um, to help people pass policies um, to change these practices that um, are happening in schools that continue to happen Back then, we didn't really have the language. Well, we did. But, you know, thanks to the work of Obama and years of organizing, now people understand it as the school to prison pipeline. But for us, we were just young people trying to get something to change at our schools, right? We were tired of, you know, going to school and 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 seeing what was happening. And, You know, it was amazing because not only were we able to actually get policy change, but just watching young people open up these comic books and say, hey, I'm not a bad kid because I've been suspended. This is a local problem. This is a citywide problem. This is a national problem. And it's called the school-to-prison pipeline, and we can change it. And it was like, wow, this is the power of data, right? This is the power of data to speak for people who've been historically disenfranchised. This is the power of data to shift narratives to really build political voice, to build political power. And for me, I was hooked, you know.
1: In your letter, you don't necessarily say that Facebook should stop collecting data, right? Uh, but you say that perhaps they're they're using it wrong or perhaps they could be using it better. Uh, could you kind of unpack that a little bit?
0: You know, Facebook collects so much data. And one of the things that I would do when I first started Data for Black Lives was one of my biggest things when I was bored or whatever would go... I would log on to research.facebook.com, and I would totally nerd out on all of the kind of peer-reviewed-style articles that came out of Facebook. Literally, researchers working at Facebook were using Facebook data to answer questions that, you know, I don't even know institutions with the biggest endowment could never research. No one had had, had the breadth, the depth, and the scale of the data that they have, whether it's on housing prices and housing markets and how that's shifting in real time. Being able to, you know, use data that's been collected from from the platform in order to do d- disaster preparedness, right, like at a level that I think federal agencies and local organizations would dream of. So for me, I was like, wow, like there's a lot that's happening at Facebook that, you know, depending on who you are, it could either be really, really cool and really you know, interesting to read, or it could also be really creepy. But either way, it gave me a lot of ideas for what we could do with that data, right? What would it look like for Facebook data to be used to help us understand, you know, what a mom is thinking or what a mom needs before a baby dies? What would it look like for us to use Facebook data to, you know, scale up efforts of existing advocates in Maryland and Oakland and Miami, Florida, who were using, Facebook as a way to disarm young people and stop shootings before they happen, right? So that, and totally addressing gun violence in a way that I don't think people are really, really doing. What would it look like to use Facebook data, you know, to really defend and protect the civil and human rights of people who really make Facebook valuable and create this data? And I think that. Unfortunately, most people are only now learning about the opportunities through developer, you know, access, through Facebook RFPs that people like, honestly, Alexander Kogan were able to access, that it is possible to use social network data, that there are channels and, and inroads. But for us, it's, for me specifically, why is it easier for Alexander Kogan to get access to this data than a black researcher who's been working tirelessly on issues that are really pressing but doing a lot, a lot of great work with very little resources. So, you know, I don't think Facebook's going anywhere. Our communities rely on Facebook. I I come from an immigrant family. My family's from Guyana. If it wasn't for Facebook, I wouldn't be able to get in touch with them or know what was going on in their lives, Right. For families that are torn apart by displacement or gentrification, Facebook is the way to connect. For poor families who don't have data plans and, you know, cell phone service, Facebook Messenger is how they stay connected even, you know, on a daily basis. So, but how do we set a new standard? How do we shift from harm reduction, which I think is really important, to actually saying, you know what, Facebook has an opportunity here to really do something powerful to really set a new standard for all tech companies. And that's sort of where our demands come from. Our first is that, you know, we're asking that that Facebook commits anonymized, de-identified data to a public data trust. The second is that Facebook commits to work with us and our leaders within the Data for Black Lives movement, with elected officials, to develop a code of ethics because there's a lot of transparency issues around their internal research review process. And the third is really simple. Hire more black data scientists, hire more black researchers to serve not only in sales and analytics roles, but also within the really robust research department that they have at Facebook.
2: So I wanted to ask you about that. Um, You mentioned in your Medium post that Facebook's diversity numbers are abysmal. Only 1% of all U.S. technical employees identifying as black and far fewer than that as African-American uh, you know, Facebook says that they're committed to increasing diversity. We heard Mark Zuckerberg up there in front of Congress saying that this is something they care about. Do you buy that they care about it? And if so, what's what's going wrong? I mean, why, why is their workforce uh, still not more diverse than it is today?
0: That's a great question. I definitely don't think it's a lack of black scientists to hire. One of the things I was so amazed by— was just how many black scientists exist. And we saw so many people kind of come out of the woodwork for our conference. So many black scientists, data scientists, software engineers. We can we can give them hundreds of names of people to hire, honestly. So that's not the issue. I really think, you know, what it comes down to is bias. It comes down to this isn't the first time folks have been pushing on Facebook to actually increase their diversity numbers to hire more black staff. This is this has been an ongoing thing, but at every point there's been pushback, right? And, you know, again, I can't – I don't know what's in the mind of Mark Zuckerberg or in the mind of the staff, but I think that there's definitely a culture there that, honestly, even if a black researcher was to go into Facebook and work there, how long would they even stay? And I think that, you know, there's the, there's a need not just for the hiring. There's a need not just for the recruitment. There's a need not just for, you know, black – you know, executive level staff at Facebook, but the need for a real intention, a real serious commitment, right, which is what we're calling for, a real commitment to racial justice and equity. Without that, hiring is never going to be something that's going to be a priority.
1: And so you you must have watched Mark Zuckerberg's uh, both hearings last week. Was there anything that you would have wanted to ask him in in relation to what we've been talking about now that didn't get asked by members of Congress?
0: Yeah, so we actually spent the morning meeting with some of our favorite senators and folks who actually we think we wanted to meet with because they they did a great job. But, you know, I think a lot of the questions that were asked were good. I would ask specifically about the um, process by which people are allowed to access Facebook data. What is the RFP process? What is the process for the public? to access Facebook data. There's over 2,600 open data portals all over the country. I'm a big fan of the open data movement. I think that's really good in terms of government transparency. But there's a lot of gaps in that data. You know, at the same time, there's such declining funding for research on gun violence, on cardiovascular health, on maternal and child health, so many issues, so much declining funding. There's a real role that Facebook can play not just in giving lip service, not just in giving money, not just in setting up coding camps, but in really committing their data to actual real research to address the problems that are facing Black communities and all communities. So I would ask about the logistics of that. How do we make inroads for the public to not only be educated on data ethics, but also to really have access honestly to the data that they create? I don't know what his answer would be to that question, but Yeah, that's what I would ask.
2: I have a question for you. I'm I'm curious your thoughts on the importance of black inclusion in data sets for face recognition. Uh, we've seen reporting about how these AI systems that are being trained to identify people's faces, they're using data sets that don't include a lot of black people, and they're not good at identifying the faces of black people, generally speaking. That you know, feels intuitively unfair and wrong, but I've heard a couple people uh, raise the question. Uh, there was there was one post I read from Nabil Hussain, a technologist and an activist, who, who said, look, I, I, in the abstract, sure, black people should be equally representative. And face recognition data sets, but on a concrete level, I question whose interests would truly be served by the deployment of these surveillance systems capable of reliably identifying Black people.
0: Yeah. You know, I think it goes back to what I said about data. It can be an instrument of social change or a weapon of political warfare and oppression, depending on whose hands in, it's in and also depending on who's at the table. I think the thing with facial recognition... If it's being used to help track down some of the Black girls that's been missing right here in D.C., absolutely, let's use facial recognition to help find missing persons, to help identify how so many young Black girls are being taken out of their communities and sex trafficked across the country. If it's being used to militarize schoolyards and and, and borders, to continue to punish and criminalize young people— to, you know, as surveillance mechanisms within retail stores. Like, no. But I think at the heart of it is, which is really why the work that we do at Data for Black Lives is so important, is it's not the technology itself. It's how it's being developed. Who's at the table? Who's a part of its development? Whose data, right? Who is making the decisions to build these predictive models that that that, that go into this right, facial recognition software? And really, how is it being operationalized? And I think, you know, that's what that's the question that we need to be asking. That's what what we need to be thinking about, right? So, you know, yeah, I definitely hear two sides of the argument. But again, I think facial recognition is a very, very, very powerful technology if it's being used by and for Black communities for the safety, protection of Black communities, for the defense of civil rights and human rights.
1: So this summer, Donald Trump announced that the U.S. government would no longer accept or allow transgender people in the U.S. military, and executives from across the technology industry were quick to denounce the move. Everyone should be able to serve their country no matter who they are, wrote Mark Zuckerberg on Facebook. Uh, Jack Dorsey spoke out. Tim Cook spoke out. But when it came to other civil rights issues like the Black Lives Matter movement, Silicon Valley leaders were much slower to respond. Dorsey was the first to voice his support for the racial justice movement amongst Silicon Valley tech companies. But Zuckerberg didn't actually get to writing his support uh, of the Black Lives Matter movement until the movement had been unfolding in the streets for more than a year. And even then, it was in an internal memo that was in response to some racist incidents at his company. I'm curious if you could help us unpack perhaps why Silicon Valley leaders are faster to respond to some civil rights issues than others.
0: That's a great question. You know, in the Medium article, the open letter, I talk about how in the United States, racism has always been numerical. How when you think about it, the very foundation of our democracy is founded on the the electoral college which is an algorithm in itself that is based on this idea that Black people are three-fifths of a person, right? We can get into complicated details of all of that, but I think philosophically, that really for me speaks to just how much we've had to battle and how far we've come, right? I think one of the things about the Black Lives Matter movement that's been really powerful and able to do was highlight the role that anti-Blackness specifically has played. Not just racism, but specifically anti-Blackness. And I think I'm not sure why people don't see the needs of Black people as being important. But what I hope people realize, and I hope people remember the history, that if it wasn't for the civil rights movement, there would be none of these other movements. Really, if it wasn't for Black people pushing from the margins, fighting for rights and justice— And really, not just for ourselves, but for all communities, right? There would be no, all these other movements would not really even exist. I think that for us, you know, as Black communities, I think, especially around this data, it's important that, you know, we really zero in on how These issues are impacting Black people. When you zoom out, you may not see discrimination. You may not see disparate impact. You may not understand how FICO credit scores or how racial targeting of ads impacts everybody. But when you really zoom in, when you really look into the data and when you really look into the lived experiences of Black people that, again, don't often make it into the news, aren't reflected in in the data sets, that's where you see the injustice. And I think that's the place that we're always fighting from. And I think that a lot of the surveillance, a lot of the harm, a lot of the oppressive tactics that have been enacted against black people, you know, are being now also now and in the future enacted against other communities, you know. So I really, really think that, you know, I again, I'm not sure why there's this bias. I'm not sure what is the I can't speak for anybody, but. I, I can say that, you know, when 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 black people lead on issues, we create change. Right. And it's not just for our communities. It's for everybody.
1: Yashima Bit Milner, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me.
2: We're going to take one last break and then we'll have Don't Close My Tabs, our picks for our favorite stories we saw on the Web this week.
1: It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. And Will, let's start with you. What story did you not want to close out of your browser this week?
2: There were actually several contenders this week, but the one I'm going to go with was from the Wall Street Journal. It was their A-head last week. That's the little thin column that runs down the front of the journal that features some of its best writing and quirkiest stories. This one was tech-related. The headline was, You think discovering a computer virus is hard? Try naming one. (laughs) And I don't think they convinced me that naming one is harder than finding one, but they did convince me that the process of naming computer bugs is funnier and weirder and more interesting than I had ever suspected. They talked about things like uh, how it used to be that bugs were just named after the database number in the the U.S. government system, and then hackers realized that they could get a lot more headlines and a lot more attention if they gave bugs a catchy name. So now, the same way that an astronomer gets to name a star when they discover one, hackers get to name the security vulnerability or virus when they find one. And so, it talks about the origins of names like the love bug, mm-hmm. uh, Y2K. Um, there was one recently called Code Red, and it turns out that it had a pretty dumb explanation. The hackers were drinking Mountain Dew Code Red, which is just disgusting, while they while they uh, found this bug, um, which reminded me a little bit of the uh, an- the archaeologists who found the Australopithecus Lucy and then named uh, named her after the song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds.
1: <laughs> this is better than my go-to, which is naming things after my exes. <laughs> No, I'm joking. <laughs> <But>
2: <laughs> I'm, sure somebody, I'm sure some hacker has done that, too, Right? Yeah,
1: that's not healthy or smart. Do not do that, anybody. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it is fun to think about how to name viruses. So the catchier the name, the more press they'll get. Is that the idea?
2: That's the idea, but it can backfire. So there was one recently that a German security firm discovered, and they called it Badlock. But then when it didn't live up to the hype, and it turned out like not that many people were affected, it wasn't really that bad then they, it got nicknamed "Sadlock" to, to, to make fun of the people who had, who had named mm-hmm. it. Uh, so that Haterade. one kind of backfired. You know,
1: sometimes that's just gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> My tab this week is less fun, more fun. I don't know, it depends on what you laugh at. I am laughing at and nodding along with the scooter crisis right now in San Francisco. There has been uh, great reporting on that from the SF Chronicle, our local paper here. Uh, the story I'm looking at now came out yesterday on Monday, SF scooter conflict, city attorney issues cease and desist orders to companies. If you are in the Bay Area, then you are aware that walking down the sidewalk is now (laughs) you are at risk of being hit by one of these razor board type scooters that you might remember kids used to use, maybe walking alongside their parents or scooting alongside their parents. Well, now adults are on them all over Silicon Valley and they are on the sidewalks. They are in the bike lanes. They are parking them in front of doors. And it makes it hard to walk down a sidewalk when uh there's somebody constantly bobbing and weaving uh, in and out of the crowd uh, with a super fast scooter. It's kind of terrifying, yeah, so
2: so i've I've heard that this is this has reached sort of epic proportions in the Bay Area. I have not seen it down here on the central coast of California. But April, are these like are these techies? Are these startup employees zipping around on these things?
1: I want to assume that, but that's probably not fair to assume. But these companies are venture capitalist funded companies that are in the vein of kind of the tech startup type folks that uh, that that whip up new companies with ideas that they'll test in San Francisco first before they scale up and then they rarely do actually scale up uh we can imagine that they're wearing those fabric sneakers all birds uh but they are or you know and have apple watches it's to the point where city attorney Dennis Hera issued a cease and desist order to the businesses that are running these scooter services, and the board of supervisors is considering this week a proposal to regulate the divisive transportation, according to the San Francisco Chronicle.
2: But is all right. So I get that there's this backlash, and it's got to be heightened by the fact that people in San Francisco and Oakland are already sick of the city having been taken over by blase techies in the first place. But are, I mean, is it really that bad? All right, so our colleague Henry. Gabar was saying, look, anything that gets people to be moving around the city not in a car... Is overall going to be a good thing? It's going to be good for traffic. It's just good in general for urban mobility. Is it? Are we overstating a little bit the, uh, the the harms from these scooters? No, I
1: don't think so. Because the people that use sidewalks are people that perhaps don't have cars, or people who you know are carrying groceries, or elderly people, or people with kids, right? People who need to get from some place to another, and they should be able to do that without fear of getting run over or constantly having to look behind their back. That somebody is on this like motorized or non-motorized scooter zipping behind them. If they are going to be integrated with the city, and, and you know, I agree that we should have things that promote less car usage. But if they are going to be integrated with the city, then they need to do so in a respectful way, in a way that uh, kind of understands the culture of the city first, and not not just helicopter in some solution to you know ostensibly get less cars off the road. But I don't think that's what they're doing here. They're trying to make as much money as possible because they're startups. I will say that. Um, The city ordinances in San Francisco that are in question here, They don't mention motorized scooters, according to the San Francisco Chronicle, so it's very difficult to regulate them. But San Francisco Public Works did seize uh, over 60 scooters last Friday under codes that allow them to clear obstructions from the sidewalks. Uh, You know, and I'll say that these scooters, I've seen them just parked in front of stores and, you know, moms with strollers don't have room to pass by. You know, if they're going to if they're going to make them work, then they have to make them work with the city and the people who live and, and love in the city, too. Right
2: yeah and and I should say that Henry's article did prefigure a possible end to the scooter boomlet. He noted that helmet laws in general tend to take all the enthusiasm out of new uh, transportation tools. so if if people start being required to wear a helmet, all of a sudden, we probably will not see them zipping around, and they're all birds. But if you are a listener, if then, if you have a scooter, maybe write us and 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 send us your thoughts uh, if you want to try to to mount a defense somehow,
1: uh, yeah, I guess they just don't want to look even. Dorkier than they already look on a scooter. I'm sorry <laughs> if you ride one. Much respect. I want to hear about it, so do write us. That wraps up our show for this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at ifthenpod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, uh, show and guest suggestions. Just say hi. Thank you to everyone who has written us. We are getting the emails uh, and we are going through them and we'll start responding to them very soon. You can follow me and Will on Twitter. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Orimus. Thanks again to our guest, Yashi Milner. You can follow her on Twitter at data Number 4 Black Lives.
2: And if you'd leave us a comment and review on iTunes, we would be forever grateful. Uh, that's really the thing that helps boost our show and get it out so that more people can hear it, so that we can keep bringing it to you each week. Yes,
1: leave us a comment, as long as it's nice. If Then is a production of <laughs> Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between... Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs.
2: Thanks to Don Allis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara.
1: Thanks to Adam Munoz at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. And thanks for additional help from Andrew Parsons at Slate in Washington, D.C. We will see y'all next week.